Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. I take it you can relate to that. Yeah. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Community Christian Church. It's so good to have you here this morning. At the same time of year, in June 2017, we hosted a Sunday morning teaching series on the family, and we called it Family Matters. Anybody remember that? A few of you. Uh, During that series, we addressed married life and single life. We talked to students and seniors and everyone in between, and we did our best to include the entire church community, and we even engaged in a little family life assessment and evaluation. And for a while, that was one of our most downloaded and listened to podcasts. So from my perspective, it was a big hit, Family Matters 2017. Such a big hit and so successful, we're bringing it back. And so this June, uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the same subject matter, families. And right out of the starting gate, even if you have some unresolved issues in your family and currently working through those, I want you to hear me say, your family matters. I'll say it again. Your family matters. And it matters because family is God's idea. It's not our idea. That's where family comes from. It comes right from the heart of God. Family is a gift. And by God's design, families are the backbone of every and all society. Families provide love, acceptance, and belonging. It's a place of safety, security, and support. And when families function the way that God intended them to, it's a beautiful thing to behold. Hands down, There's no other gift like it. Now, in our culture today, and I don't have the time to go through all of this, but we have many different family structures. First, there's birth family, or the family that we were born into. There's in-law family, or family by marriage. There's step family, blended family, foster family, adoptive family, and church family, and that's not an exhaustive list. The specific structure of the family is not the main issue. What's most important is the strategy or the master plan of the family. And according to the word of God, when we get the strategy right and when we embrace the master plan, there is a tremendous God-ordained blessing. That's what the word tells us. Then when we're willing to trust God, when we apply even the tough scriptures to our lives and to our family lives, God gets involved and he blesses us. And here's what that blessing oftentimes looks like. And all of the current research supports what I'm about to tell you. Children from strategic, loving families are happy and healthy, physically and emotionally. They do better in school. They are less likely to turn to drugs or engage in questionable activities. These same kids, last, they land the best jobs. 
They become successful and productive in society. They establish healthy and uh, relationships of their own. And they learn the value of respect and commitment. And they even live longer. That's what the research says. All because of a loving, caring family. And yes, there are exceptions to the rule. And you can be a parent, and you can do most everything right and do your best to provide for your children and to protect them and to pray for them. And for some unknown reason, things can go sideways. It happens. I've seen it happen. It's called life. But here's what I've learned. Check this out. The same dynamics that help create a loving, caring family also work to repair and restore broken families. I'll say it again. The same dynamics that help to create a loving and caring family also work to repair and restore brokenness within the family. Now, last year, during Family Matters 2017, I gave you 10 characteristics or 10 dynamics of a healthy family. And these 10 characteristics do both of these things that I just mentioned. They promote health and they heal brokenness. So I gave you these 10 uh, characteristics last year. I'm wondering if anybody wants to stand up and recite all 10. Look at this. All right, hold on, hold on, we have a taker. In fact, why don't we put that list on the board and we'll all say it together. Here you go. Unconditional love. You can just oh. read it off of there. Oh. I see it's in your notes. But go ahead. <laughs> Open lines of communication, share a strong spiritual foundation, protection, affirm the value of uniqueness, make allowance for failure, practice common courtesy, share responsibility, play family activities, and problem management. Wow. Great job. Are they coming back to you now? Do you remember them after we repeated them? See, last year, we made a big deal of all 10 of these. And we went through them one by one. I took the time to explain them to you, to describe them, and then we evaluated our families. And we saw all the results on the screen. And the areas you were uh, rated really high in, the ones that you do, are doing really well, I commended you for those. And then I said to you, if you have any weak areas, then maybe you want to try and improve upon them. Because all 10 of these characteristics work. And they work for all families. Again, birth family, in-law family, step, blended, foster, adoptive, and church family. Especially church family. Say that, church family. These 10 dynamics, these 10 characteristics work within a church family or a spiritual family. And that's the focus I want to begin the series with today. I want to talk about the church family, the church community. Now, under normal circumstances, during a family series, what we typically do is we present the different structures and the different forms of family. 
And then towards the end of the series, usually right around the last installment, just to cover our diplomatic bases and make sure that we didn't exclude anyone or leave anyone out, that's when we usually add a lesson for the church family. Well, I want to change that approach uh, this time around and modify it somewhat. And I'd like to begin Family Matters 2018 by talking about the church family. And I'm going to do that intentionally and on purpose. And the reason I want to do that is because for some people, the church family represents the only loving, caring, and supportive family they have. Now, some of us, we don't know what that feels like. But for other people, their church family means everything to them. And if that's the case for you, if your church family is the only really supportive family members that you have, I want you to know you're in good company because Jesus experienced the very same thing himself. Think about this. In the scripture, we have a picture of Jesus when he was 12 years old. And at that time, he's surrounded by his family members, his parents, his relatives, and his friends. And they're all doing life together. They go on vacation together. They take part in religious holidays together. They celebrate the Passover together. And in those days, the Passover celebration was the big event of the year, almost like our Christmas celebration. And so when you see Jesus on that occasion at 12 years old, it appears as though it's one big happy family. But then fast forward several years later, after Jesus is obedient to the call that God the Father had given him, after he decides to leave the family business, and to go into full-time ministry. And when that happens, who is he spending the most time with? Who is he in the company of? His disciples, which represent his church family. In fact, during the final Passover celebration that Jesus had with his disciples, remember, an event that God ordained to be a family event The families were supposed to come together and celebrate the Passover. But during the last Passover that Jesus had with his disciples, who's he with other than his disciples? Nobody. There's no church, there's no relatives with him, no blood relatives. Not one single member of his family was there. His parents weren't there. His brothers and sisters weren't there. His extended family members weren't there. He does not have his family around him during that last Passover. In fact, some of his siblings came right out and rejected him. Refused to spend any time with him. Because they said he was beside himself. That he flipped. And he belonged on the funny farm. And for that reason, many of them had nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe some of your family members feel the same way about you. I certainly know what that feels like. You see, family rejection and religious persecution, it's a part of the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Jesus said so. And sometimes when you're the only family member that gets saved, 
when you're the only one in your family right now that's made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one serving God with all of your heart, the only one depending upon God's word, family life can be a little lonely. In fact, for some people, it can be downright painful. That's when the church family steps up to the plate and becomes a huge blessing. Because in situations like that, you cannot put a price tag on the love and the acceptance of brothers and sisters in Christ. See, that's the value of the church family. You know, sometimes we don't understand how important a church family really is. Uh, sometimes we have the attitude, we can take it or leave it. But for some of these other people, brothers and sisters and family members that we have here in the church, we are the only family they have. And this church means everything to them. And so this morning, before we gather around the communion table and receive the bread and the cup, what I'd like to do is highlight the final Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples. I want to talk about what happened during that celebration. And again, he wasn't surrounded by family members. It was just his church family. And what I want to do this morning, instead of reading the scripture, I want to tell it to you in my own words. And hopefully, I'm going to, I, I'd like to paint a dramatic picture, a picture of a loving and caring community. That's what Jesus had with his disciples. That's what Jesus established with those 12 men and himself. He worked really hard to make sure that they were encouraged and that they were mentored and they were led and they were loved. And so as I tell this story, which I have pieced together from a harmony of the four gospels, what I'd like you to do is look at the list of 10 characteristics behind me and I want you to try and identify the corresponding family dynamics from that list that Jesus implemented during the Passover meal. I want you to see if you can identify some of these key characteristics because I sure hope that you didn't think I came up with these 10 last year all by myself. No, they're in the scripture and Jesus was the first one to appropriate each one of them uh, with his disciples. Okay, so here we go. Uh, the scripture tells us it was on the first day of unleavened bread or the feast of Passover that Jesus uh, got a hold of Peter and John and told the two of them to assemble the rest of the guys and to prepare for the Passover because he wanted to share this meal with them. He wanted uh, to have a very special and intimate time with them. So Peter did what he was told, got all the 10 guys together, and they had uh, different assignments, different responsibilities, and they made this meal happen. And right before the dinner bell was rung, they all came together, they took their place at the table, the scripture says, all 13 of them, 12 and Jesus, and that means that Judas was included, even though Jesus, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, he still invited him to the Passover meal. And right before they started eating, that's when Jesus noticed that Peter had forgotten to hire the guy whose job it was to wash everybody's feet. And in those days, you couldn't hide your dirty feet under the table. They didn't have a table. You reclined at the table and your feet were out in the open. 
And so you had two responsibilities really before you uh, sat down to eat. Not only did you have to wash your hands, you had to wash your feet. But Jesus noticed that everybody had dirty feet. Instead of making a big deal about it and pointing out Peter's mistake, he simply got up, went over to the serving table, grabbed a water basin and a towel, and he himself washed everybody's feet. Now, I know you know that because you're aware of the scripture, but I want you to envision it. This is Jesus going around the table, washing everybody's feet. And then as he seldom did, he turned that whole episode into a teachable moment. And he said to the guys, I don't want you to wait around for other people to make a big fuss about you. In other words, you don't always have to be the center of attention. But what I want you to do is I want you to follow my example and learn what it means to serve others. In fact, that's the whole reason Jesus said that I came, was not to be served, but to serve. Jesus went on to say, the greatest among you is the one who learns this art of having a servant's heart. And so after explaining that to them, after having that little lesson, they said grace, and then they started to dig in. And these were some hungry men. So they were really pounding that food. And that's when Jesus confronted them. He made a statement that caused them all to stop eating immediately. He looked at the 12 guys, those who had become his closest friends, those who were one brotherhood and community, and he said to them, one of you is going to betray me. And immediately, they began to do a self-examination, and they asked Jesus one by one, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Because they wanted to know if it was going to be them. And then Simon Peter always had something to say, and he said, thinking that he was incapable of making the same mistakes that everybody else would make, and concluding that there was no way in the world that he would ever allow himself to do such a thing, he turned to Jesus and said, I don't know about these other guys. They might bail on you, they might betray you or abandon you, but I'll tell you, Jesus, I would never do that. In fact, I am fully prepared right now to go to my death on account of you. And Jesus said, oh, really, Peter? I hate to tell you this, but before the night is out, you're going to deny you even know me. And in the same breath, talking about betrayal and denial and failure and mistakes, Jesus motored right into his next theme, which was love. And he said, I have a new commandment for you. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And lest I remind you, Jesus said, I have loved you unconditionally. And furthermore, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, Jesus said, all of you. You're my friends. And even in light of your failures and your betrayals and your denials, 
I still willingly lay down my life for you. I set this example for you, and I want you to follow it. It's not a suggestion or a recommendation. This is my commandment that you love. And as you know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always rejoices with the truth. It always hopes. It always perseveres. It always endures. And we're taught throughout the scripture that this kind of love that Jesus was talking about, it never fails. It never fails. Even in a broken, sinful, an unjust world. Jesus said, the love that I'm explaining, the love that I'm expressing, and the love that I'm being an example of, it will hold to the end. In fact, he said these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But to help you, he said to his disciples, to help you reflect this powerful love and grace in a sinful world, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to lead you and guide you in all truth. He's going to teach you what is right. He's going to convict you of the things that are wrong and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses in a very dark and broken world, starting with your family. You're going to be my witnesses to the people around you because you have within you this gift of the Holy Spirit who's going to teach you how to love and how to show this kind of grace and mercy to the people around you. And he made a big deal about that teaching, talks about that for a couple of chapters in the Gospel of John. And then as Jesus brings this powerful final Passover celebration with his disciples to a close, he prays for them all. And in his closing comments, Jesus says a prayer for us. Can you believe that? Just about to go to the cross and still he has us in mind. And he says a prayer, a future prayer for every single one of us who would be willing to take that risk and to put our trust in him to step out of our comfort zone and fully surrender our hearts and lives to God. He prays for us because he loves us. And so oftentimes, just like it was with Jesus, and probably for most of the other original disciples, a decision to run hard after the living God and serve Jesus with all of your heart oftentimes means a strain with family members who have yet to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus. People who are not saved, they don't see the scripture the same way that you do. They don't interpret life the way that we do when we process that through the word of God. They don't have a revelation of the Holy Spirit. They don't have that power living in their heart like we do. And so they are not on the same spiritual level as we are. And that's what puts a tremendous amount of strain on some families where husband and wife are not both saved, where parents and children are not both saved. 
You see, your family members might not always have the same passion for God that you do. They may not always see life through the word of God like you do. That's when you need your church family. That's when your church family can support what you believe and how you wish to live. And again, for some of us who take the church for granted because we have a support system within our own families, Maybe your husband or your wife is, maybe, uh, is uh, saved. Maybe your children are all serving the Lord. Maybe when you gather together for family vacations, you can do life together because everybody is on the same plane, plane spiritually. But for some people, that is not the case. And the church family means the world to them. And so sometimes the church is not for you. Doesn't mean that you are not needed, it absolutely requires that you understand uh, the person sitting next to you, the person you might run into on the way into church or next to the coffee machine, they might need you more than you think. And so this is a gift that God gives to us. All right, let's bow our heads and prepare for communion. Father, we thank you for the gift of family. And these days, there's just so many struggles, Lord, with the family. And we're going to talk about that this month. Because, Lord, you have a plan for us. You have a strategy for families. And you exemplified 10 dynamics, 10 characteristics during this final Passover meal that you celebrated with your disciples. And Lord, you taught, not only them, but you taught us how to plan family activities, how to share responsibility, how to practice common courtesy, how to resolve problems and manage them. You taught us open lines of communication, and making allowance for failure. You had unconditional love for us. You taught us what it means to share a strong spiritual foundation. You talked all about protection. And you affirmed the value of uniqueness. And Lord, we need those dynamics in operation not only in our individual families, but also in our church family. And Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit today that you could go beyond what I can say with words and you can paint this picture of how valuable, how important and essential the church is today. Such a struggle, Lord, for church ministries because we're such busy people, we have so much going on. But Lord, I pray that every person that you leads this way, that you lead this way, every student, every senior, and everyone in between who relies and depends upon the love and acceptance of a brother and sister in Christ, that Lord, we would be sensitive to that and we would understand and know that that's our responsibility as a part of the body of Christ. 
We pray for those this morning, Lord, who are struggling within their families. Those who are standing alone for the gospel message. They don't have the support of parents. They don't have the support of grandparents or a husband or a wife or children who know what it, it means to serve the Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, for having this venue, this avenue and platform we call the church. Minister, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the scripture tells us that every time we come to the communion table and we receive the bread and the cup, we should do it after a little season of self-examination. I mentioned to you a few moments ago during the Passover meal that Jesus called his disciples to that place where they had to look at their own hearts. They had to reflect upon their lives. They said, Lord, is it me? And so it's always a good idea when we take the bread in the cup to first spend a couple of minutes and just kind of make our peace with God. Take a look at our lives. If there's some things that we're doing that we shouldn't be, if there's some things that we're not doing that we should be, you should make some commitments. And when you do that during the communion service, the wall or the space or the distance between you and God, it shrinks. That's why I love communion so much. Because truth be told, sometimes I just feel this distance. Things happen in this world and I, I just get out of that zone that you're supposed to be in. But during the communion time, just reflecting upon what Jesus has done, it brings us back to that place of being in right standing with him. And so for me, the process is always the same. There's a couple of verses of scripture that I go over in my mind and I review every time we take the bread and the cup. And some of those verses come from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins and our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. That just reminds me of the tremendous ministry that Jesus accomplished for me. I know for you too, but for me, it personalizes my relationship with God when I remember what Jesus did on the cross for me. And then you can't get to Isaiah 53, 5 without going through Isaiah 53, 3. And it says that Jesus was despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now we know how badly the punishment must have been that sent him to the cross, the beating, uh, the nailing to the cross, the crown of thorns. We know how painful that was. We can imagine what it must have felt like. But how about the rejection? He was rejected. I mentioned to you that some of the people who rejected him were from his own family. 
We know his brother James didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. James didn't want anything to do with his brother. Yesterday afternoon, I was thinking about the communion service today, and I thought about these verses of scripture. I was reviewing them. And I, the thought came to me, when it comes to rejection, what do people reject most about Jesus? If you were to make a list of all the things that people reject when it comes to Jesus, what would be at the top of that list? And if you read the scripture and you, you study prophetically uh, why people rejected Jesus and what happened there with the scribes and the Pharisees, I would say the answer to that question, if not at the very top, very close to the top, was that people rejected Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God. They just didn't believe he was the Son of God. James, his brother, didn't believe it. Do you know how difficult it is for siblings and family members to believe God has done something new in your life? Jesus himself said a prophet is without honor. Where? In his hometown. Because people know you. Your neighbors, they know you. Your, your brothers and your sisters, they know you. Your family members know you. You know, maybe Jesus, when he was young, uh, chewed with his mouth open. You know, maybe when he was a kid, uh, you know, he was bossy. I don't know. Maybe he forgot sometimes to put deodorant on. I did that in junior high. It's bad news. as a part of the rejection of Jesus as the Son of God, refusing to believe his claim that he was actually divinity, what people had a difficult time with is the fact that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. They just couldn't get their way, they couldn't make their way to believing that Jesus, that guy in front of them, that man that they grew up with, he had the power to forgive sins. God can forgive sins, they said, but not you. Do you know we have a hard time with forgiveness? It is one of the most difficult issues that we have to deal with as Christians. And not just extending forgiveness to others, I'm talking about receiving it. We have a horrible time receiving forgiveness from mistakes that we've made. Just last week, I was having a conversation with a Community Christian Church member who told me that a person who used to attend our church 12 or 13 years ago thinks I hate them. Come right out and said that. This person thinks you hate them. And they came to church a long time ago they did something that wasn't very nice, and they left the church after that. Let me tell you, I am so far past that. I mean, that is so far in the distance. I'd, it's like it never even happened. Seriously, I let that thing go a long time ago. We have a hard time letting go, friends. And so let me ask you this morning, have you accepted or rejected Jesus claim to be the Son of God. I, I think most of you would say, you know, I, I believe that. I've accepted and I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. 
but have you accepted his power and ability to forgive your sins? Because that's a part of it. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much? All. Can you believe a God could do that to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? He does it. He does it. That's our great God. Let's bow our heads for just a moment before we take the bread and the cup together. Lord, we live in a sinful world and we are human beings that you created from the dust of the earth. And your word tells us that you remember how you created us. So prone, Lord, to sin with such a propensity to make wrong decisions and do the wrong things. And you refuse to leave us that way. You said, no way am I going to allow my creation to be steeped in sin. So you sent your son to the cross to die, and then you offer forgiveness for our sins. And all we need to do is confess. Included along with the confession is some repentance which is a determination and commitment to not repeat the same behavior because confession without repentance equals repeat. Lord, we don't want to repeat the offenses. And so when we confess our sins, we're adding into that a strength and a grace that you provide that will enable us to live differently. And I pray that for my church family today. I pray that for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you've joined to this community, that, Lord, we could forgive ourselves knowing that you forgive us. That once we confess those things that we need to confess, you remove all unrighteousness from us and we are in right standing with you. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you for allowing us to celebrate that truth every single time we gather around the communion table. I thank you, Lord, for setting this church free today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take the bread and the cup together. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.